Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I am interviewing one of my most favorite people on this planet, Terrell Musser. Terrell, can you say hello? Hello. Now, I'm not just joking. Terrell has become like family to me. He's, uh, he's I call him my soul sister. He's somebody that I just absolutely adore and is probably one of the best things to come out of um, the Musser name. How do you feel about that, Terrell? Uh, it's an honor to even get to know you and thank you for the kind words. And, you know, I just want to live up to my name. I mean, there's the Musser's have a good name and they are good people so Terrell let's start with who you are and then we'll get into talking about what we're going to talk about today I've asked Terrell to talk about what is happening with the FLDS right now and the status of Short Creek who is Lyle Jeffs why does his capture matter and all of that but first Terrell let's talk about you um tell us where you were born who you are and why you're on the podcast so my name is Terrell Musser. I was actually born in Sandy, Utah. And in 1987, my dad moved his family from Salt Lake to Hildale, Utah. And I grew up in Hildale, Utah, my whole young adult and growing up life. And uh, when I was 18, I ended up leaving that religion and striking out on my own. And I was gone for about 12 years. And two and a half years ago, I moved back home into the house that I was raised in. And when I got back at home, you know, the, the town was really, really dead and just tired. And it looked terrible. It wasn't the town that I grew up in. And so I started looking around to see what I could do to help. And that kind of put me down the road I am on today and got to know Lindsay. And What was the first thing we did together? Do you remember? Uh, the first thing I ever did with you is you came down and you were on a project and you actually helped me uh, put together the first rally in Colorado City, Utah, the, uh, a civil rights movement rally. And it's, you know, the, the high school has done rallies in the past, but I think this was the first rally of what, what we were doing for civil rights that had ever happened in that town. And you helped me put that together with your group. Yeah, that was fun. And the, the town didn't even know how to issue a permit to gather or anything at the time. No, it, it, the town, I called the city and he's like, uh, what is that? You know, I says, well, most cities you call and you get a protest permit. He's like, well, no, don't make sure you don't do it on uh, public property. And so we ended up getting permission from the trust to use the gas station right across from the police station. So it actually worked out really nice. Yeah, we were protesting fair treatment with the FLDS police because at the time that the police department was mostly FLDS and a lot of people in town were discriminated against. And so we were protesting the police, actually. That was such a wild experience now thinking back on it. Yeah, I was actually looking at those photos and and just the reactions and just, you know, we just wanted our civil rights out here. And that's what we wanted. That's what we're trying to get the message is, is we wanted to be treated equally. Yeah. And we were just happy to help. Uh, one of the things that our group does with the Fern Foundation is we go down and we let the people in the town drive uh, what needs to be done. We listen to them because they know the most and then we just help. And so that was the first thing we got to do, which was really cool. So, Carol, yeah. talk to us about... 
like, can you give us like a brief background of the town? Because something that you should know about Terrell is that he not only is one of the main people responsible for reforming Short Creek, making it more healthy, but he is also someone who, um, he's a historian. He's a town historian. He documents a lot of the stuff in the town and it's, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. So I can kind of give you a little bit of history of like the, how the cities were founded. Is that what you're looking for? Yeah. Just, well, just, we know a little bit about the town, but give us like a brief history of how the town used to be and then how it was when you found it. So growing up in this town, it was, it was the most amazing town a kid could ever grow up in on summer. For instance, you know, we would go hiking and we would, we were go hiking as kids and, you know, we were 12 to 15 and we would go for three or four days go up and just live off the land and, and you know you had parents to trust you but by that time you were pretty responsible but growing up here you know we we would play baseball we'd play football we would do family events we would do new year's was huge out here and we do these big fourth of july and we honored our veterans and we just had all this stuff that we looked forward to the harvest festival that we would do every year would last three days and everybody that you'll ever meet out here, if you tell them about the Harvest Fest, you know, they're just good memories and the town coming together, celebrating the end of the year, being grateful for the harvest and uh, families doing dances and families singing and writing songs and doing plays. And and so the town that we grew up was just very free. You could literally go anywhere at six o'clock and eat dinner. Everybody's houses were unlocked. I loved how big my family was. You know, if you needed a football team, you had it with your brothers and a baseball, you had it with your family. And to me, it was, it was perfect. But at the time I didn't know any better. You know, I, I, I remember going shopping with my mom as a kid and we would get three big grocery carts clear full and everybody would just stare. And I just, I, I just always remembered or talked to myself and was like, I wonder why they think we're so weird. You know, I love my life. I love where I grew up. And we, my dad made it a big point and he would take us every year down to California to the beach house. And so we were a very active family. We went fishing, we went camping, we went to the beach, we'd go to the Disneyland, we'd go to, you know, it was just like any other family in America in my mind. You know, and then as I got older and as things started changing, it started changing slowly. You know, uh, what you could dress, it started changing just really slowly over time. Someone would mention, you know, hey, it'd be good to see these men wearing this. And all of a sudden it would be something that we were all supposed to be doing. And it slowly got really, really strict. So just, just at the time... You still dress conservatively, right? Most women wore skirts. Yeah. And, but we, uh, my mom would make everything, but we'd go down and get the dress patterns from the DI and then she would just add sleeves or make it a little bit lower. And so there are all the different styles of dresses. So they just covered the garment. And then as Warren, Warren starts to take power and maybe even with Rulin, his father, well, Warren's control really started earlier than I think a lot of people realize. You know, I, I think, you know, Warren started doing his stuff all the way back in the Alta Academy days, trying to wiggle his way in. And if 
you know, all the documents and stuff that I've researched and stuff. He's just there in the backgrounds playing, playing a lot of things, you know. And one of them was the dress and talk about what he did. Talk about the changes that started happening to the actual look of the town. You know, we were very prideful out here every year. We'd get together as a community, a big community project cleanup. But when I moved out here and for the last eight years, 10 years, you drive to the town and you wouldn't see anybody on the streets. You wouldn't see anybody taking care of the yards. The, the sand have come back in and it just looked like a ghost town. It looked like a town that had blend, bled dry. And that's what really happened is everybody was giving everything that they had to the church, sacrificing everything, their yards, and they had the gardens that they, they'd keep watered. But other than that, the whole town was just sad. Nobody worked on their houses. Nobody painted their fences. You know, everybody was just doing everything they could to give everything back to the church, and it just really took a toll on the town. One of the misconceptions about uh, Short Creek particularly is that Warren asked people to stop building their on their homes so they could get so they wouldn't have to pay taxes on their homes. Can you talk about that? No, I've heard a lot of people say, you know, they they didn't finish their houses so they don't have to pay their taxes. So they'll finish the inside and then not not finish the outside so they'll never have to pay a finished house taxes. And I don't know if that's really true, but I know that the reason why that would happen was because none of the houses out here were built through bank loans. It was built with money that you would save. So you'd build your houses in stages. And so you try to get it livable. So if you got married, you could actually have a, t- a place for your family. And there was families that could f- afford to finish them. But a lot of families would just um, move in and then you know, they start having children and realize that children cost a lot of money. And it's hard for it was hard for a lot of people to finish their houses just due to that. There's that. And there's the fact that this is something that surprised me, too. When I went down there, it was pretty much dead, like you talked about, because I've been down there several years now. And at first, the first few years that I would go down like four or five years ago, I would be followed. It would feel really dangerous. And now it's not like that at all. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So, you know, even let's say three years ago, you would drive through the town and you'd be immediately followed by somebody. And out here, we call it the God squad, you know, the, the church protectors or enforcers or, but you would be followed around and you'd be harassed. If you were, you know, taking a picture, you'd stop somewhere. The, the children were very, very rude. The people driving around are very rude to you. They'd spin on you. They would slant you know flip you off and they do slander and 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 why tell talk to us about what they're thinking and why they would do that you know as their thinking is you're an intruder in their territory and growing up we were taught to be respectful to the outside communities and we were i mean in the 80s and early 90s you could go out and about and people say oh Colorado City Hill, though, absolutely the most respected people ever, you know, just hard workers. But the kids started getting raised differently. They were taught to defend, this is our land. These are outsiders. These are apostates. We need to drive them out through fear and uh, and just ignorance and being rude, really. And as far as anybody ever getting hurt, nobody 
that I know of. There was a, a boy that got hit by a bike and, and there's been a few instances like that. But as far as someone from the outside coming in, I don't think they'd ever hurt anybody, but it, their tactics is to intimidate and scare off. And that's kind of what the Jeff's boys were. They were just intimidating. They just had a very big bark. But if you ever confronted them, they would cower. You know, they were cowards. Yeah, and that's certainly my experience. I remember one time I was with Sam Brower and Andrew Chatwin, and they were taking photos of the wall being built around the chapel. And we had a dump truck try to run us over and little kids flipping us off. But I never felt in danger ever. I actually felt like it was kind of a dance, like it was a game that was being played. And it was really interesting to see it happen because the children were doing it almost as if this they didn't have anything better to do. I don't I don't know how to explain it, but it it never felt dangerous. It just felt like everyone was acting out their roles in a play, if that makes sense. Yeah, and the the whole the children changed a lot out here because growing up we were allowed to uh, work in the gardens, work in the fields. You know, we picked fruit. Um, we were busy as kids growing up too out here. And what Warren did was he took away, you know, all the bikes, all the balls. There's no playing. All the the basketballs got cut down. The hoops, a lot of hoops got cut down. And they weren't allowed to get jobs until they were a certain age. Um, so all of a sudden you went from all these young people being really busy to all of a sudden having nothing to do but read the Book of Mormon. And that was their life. And so you just all of a sudden, young kids can't do that. They can't hold still. They're going to find something to do. And they get destructive. And they, you know, it's just, it's just human nature. And why not Why not point it towards outsiders who are trying to destroy your way of life? It makes sense. It's just a somewhere for the, the blame can go. I mean, they really don't understand why they're angry, mad. But, you know, there's, there's going to be a lot of kids that need some help coming out of this. And there is a lot of kids out there that are just good kids, but they're just, they have no idea how the world works or... Most of them have, have never had a job or even talked about it. And it's just, and they're 18, 20 years old, you know, they've been, everything's been done for them. Uh, the well, church has just given them vehicles. And, and so you're completely reliable on the, the church. But when we were growing up, we were more self-reliable, but the church turned it into where you solely relied on the church. And that was done solely for control. So I want to I want to get in and talk about that, but first let's let's talk about Lyle Jeffs really quick because it's relevant right now. It's June twenty second, two thousand seventeen. Last week, Lyle Jeffs, the brother of Warren Jeffs, was captured. Terrell, I was hoping you could back up, tell us who Lyle is, where he comes from, why he's important, how he was allowed to get power, and then why we ended up where we are today. So Lyle is the brother of Warren Jeffs. And for a lot of years, he was the bishop out here at the, at the church. So when, when Warren went to prison, Warren entrusted Lyle to carry his message and his, his will to the people. But from what I've gathered, you know, he made up a lot of rules on his own and he probably punished the people more than anybody that I have known as far as starvation, uh, non-care, um, kicking families out, kicking 
mom's out taking children. And who knows if that's what Warren told him to do, but everybody's responsible for their own actions and has to be accountable for what they did, no matter who told them what to do. You know, I heard a story that I, that I have, I have permission to share. I was talking to, um, Warren's son who I've had on the podcast, Roy Jeffs, and we were talking about Lyle. I think it was on the day that Lyle was captured and he was just telling that Lyle, telling me that Lyle was really cruel. He was known for being cruel. And I said, like, like, what do you mean, Roy? And Roy said, well, when, when I got word that I had to be separated from my mother, I, I, I felt really sad. And I said, can I at least speak to my mom? And Lyle laughed at me. I said, what do you mean laughed at you? And he said, well, he like made fun of me that I, that I was going to miss my mom, that I was a grown man, that I was going to miss my mom. And I said, you know, Roy, and all this talking about your dad, like your dad is demented and he has all these problems, but your dad never seemed cruel. He seemed like earnest and like uh, delusional, but not cruel in this way. And he said, yeah, my dad wasn't like that, but Lyle was. And I've asked around and it seems like Lyle did have a real mean streak to him. Is that your experience? Yeah. So the difference between Lyle and, and Warren is, is Warren's more complacent, soft toned, more uh, through the mental, but Lyle is very physical. He was very competitive. He loves sports. He, you know, he would, he's, and he was always demeaning to women and put people down. And in my, he's just, he was a mean person. So as a bishop, what does a bishop of the town do? Explain what what his roles would have been, because I come from it from an LDS understanding, and our bishop would have been bishop of our ward. But a bishop in Short Creek is a little bit different. So your bishop in our, the way we were raised was the bishop actually ran the town. And so he would um, basically take care of the people's needs um, for food. And uh, he would tell people where to live. His powers, uh, he could tell people they were kicked out or this person was going to be with this other person. Um, he basically ran the entire organization from the money to the people to talking to Warren and then dispersing everything from Warren. So Warren would tell him what to do and then he would tell everybody else what Warren was, was saying. It's very much like an Edward Partridge sort of bishop, the old the old 1840s sort of bishop, Warren, and um, some of the fundamentalists were trying to institute with this. So there really was no difference. And as, as you well know, Terrell, and I have seen in the last few years, the town really was not separate from religion at all. So Lyle was in charge of that. And and can you speak to the fact that Lyle has been rumored to have instituted, allegedly through his brother, who is in jail, um, a lot of the unhealthy things. So the way that I've been I've been um, able to understand it is that Warren has about 10 people he's allowed to speak to in prison. Lyle is one of those people. Warren will go and dictate things either through shorthand or sometimes they'll sneak in a recorder on a watch or something. He'll dictate a revelation or a new thing, sometimes in coded language, and Lyle would take it back and institute it. And one of those things is the seed bearer doctrine or whatever you want to call it, which was really, really controversial. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So what I heard is that actually did happen. 
and and that was in instated or i don't know the word to say there that i think but from what i gathered and the people i've talked to was that that was actually they don't know if it came from warren or from lyle and that's one of those things where people were wondering if lyle kind of was messing around because he had so much power yeah so so the way when Warren was imprisoned, he stopped all the marriages. He annulled all the marriages, which meant husband and wives were no longer allowed to live together or be together. And of course, there's a doctrine, a fundamentalist doctrine that that shows up in a lot of fundamentalist sects, which is that you know a baby has to be born every year through polygamy to keep it alive on earth or Satan will have power over the earth or something. And so how they remedied this is the 15 men, the 15 um, apostles or leadership would go to the endowment house and it could be getting the details a little foggy and a woman would lie on an altar and would be impregnated um, by one of the 15 chosen men, the seed bearers. And um, sometimes if she was righteous enough, her former husband could stand by as a witness. Did I get that right? Yep. You are correct. And that is exactly. Yep. So it's something awful. It's awful to talk it's, about. It's, I mean, you, you think about that we live here in the United States in America, right? Mm-hmm. And you start talking about this stuff and people are like, is this in a third world? Where is this over here or there? And it's just when you say, no, this is here in, in, in the United States here in our backyard. And it just shocks most people. Yeah, it's here in a, in a state that really says family values is like their their main crowning glory, and yet this is a different kind of family system that has been running. Really, the the Jeffs family, right? Yeah, it's really been the Jeffs family since the eighties. You know, the Jeffs is after Uncle Roy died, then Roland uh, came to power, and it's been they've been here since then. And another thing that Lyle Jeffs has helped institute, now again, it's kind of impossible to know whether this is Warren or whether it's Lyle or whether it's both of them. What we do know is that Lyle has been in power and instituted these things. Uh, Lots of family reassignments where, um, and Warren did this too, but where women would be reassigned to a new husband and all their children would be reassigned to a new father. Kids are all split up. If you go down to Hilldale and Colorado City today, and there are some FLDS families still there, you can't guarantee that the children living there belong to those parents biologically because they've all been reassigned by the church. Yeah, and and a lot of them won't have birth certificates, and it is a mess. I mean, there's these kids that a lot of them don't know who their fathers are, and then they're getting in these teenage years where they start messing around and getting curious with girls and realize that, Hey, this probably could be my sister, my cousin. And you know, nobody knows. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody knows. And there are stories that I've heard, not just once or twice, but multiple times of kids who grow up having a father till they're 10 years old and then their mother gets reassigned and then they have a new father and then they get a new mother. And it's, it's, the way that uh, the Jeff's boys have really broken up families and disrupted this town is 
cruel isn't even the right word. There's not a strong enough word for it. It's it's demented. That's that's for sure. It was literally spiritual suicide. What he did out here, just um, to just run you that mentally ragged to what he was doing. It was just. I mean, you look back and looking back in it, and you just it's it's amazing. So many people come out of as well as they do. To be honest with you. I know I'm I'm surprised too. There's a lot of resiliency, and we can talk about that too. But let's let's finish with Lyle. So Lyle was the bishop running things. How was he? Why was he arrested the first time? So he was arrested for food stamp fraud, and and so it was one of the biggest fraud cases in this state. And uh, so they were all arrested for the fraud for uh, food stamps, the conspiracy so, to fraud. Yeah. What were they accused of doing? Explain the system and how they did this. So the out here, the bishop's storehouse, so Lyle's running the storehouse. And so everybody was to give everything that they had and owned to the storehouse. And then the people with food stamps, they were to go turn in their cards with their balance amount so the storehouse could go because not everybody was allowed to go to town. There was only certain people that could go downtown to do all the shopping. And so they would take all the food stamps from all the people that needed them that had the children. And they would go downtown and buy all the food for the people and bring it back to the storehouse. Well, the people that were doing the food stamps were getting back like rice and bread. And people like Lyle were getting lobster and eating well. And so a lot of the businesses around town would accept that food stamp because it was the bishop and, you know, the, the town was run by the church. And so these people would go in and do all this food stamp stuff through these businesses and write it off as food stamps and then they'd take it. And it was just a huge fraud because the people that were issued the cards were not using the cards. Someone else was doing it. The church was actually doing it. And so they were found guilty and I, I think it's 1.3 million they were found guilty of. And so that was, but he's also been in trouble with the, the U.S. Department of Labor for the assessed fine total of 1.96 million for the, for the pecan picking. And I don't know if he skipped out on that hearing because that was back in 2012, I so believe. So explain that. So this is something that's recently come up in the news. Um, there was a case with child labor. Do, well, just explain what the pecan thing is. So out here, um, and you guys, you guys remember, this was different times than times that I grew up in out here. And so by this time, the religion is completely different than the religion we grew up in. And so... There was no public schools. They were all private schools, church schools, we called them, because most of the stuff you learned in there was about the Book of Mormon and, and church, priesthood history and stuff like that. Because so, Warren had in, I forget, like 2000, 2001 or something, got rid of, had everyone pull their kids out of public schools and go to private schools or homeschools. Yep. yep. They were all homeschools, private schools, you know, and each each people around you know you had un uncle fred the bishop had the jessup school you had the barlow school you had the williams school and so kind of the some of the leaders of the town built big schools for their groups their families 
and they were all church schools and you, you'd go in there and you would listen to uncle Warren on tapes for hours on hours and you would, and then do reports on what he would talk about and what you learned from the lesson. And it was just every day doing that, doing that. I mean, imagine getting that pounded in your head every day as a kid growing up and, but I didn't grow up like that. I grew up in a public school. So they would, during the times when they would do get these big, uh, pecan, they, they would go pick the nuts and they would go and round up all the kids from all the schools and they would send out a phone saying, there won't be any school today. We're going to go down and pick pecans. And so they'd take all these kids out of school and go down and pick pecans. And they did it for uh, the storehouse. And it would go back and they'd use it in their storehouses or they'd sell it. I'm not sure what they were doing with these ones. And so they were found guilty of child labor and for uh, pulling these kids out of school to make them go pick pecans. 2012, I believe it was in 2012, then they were found guilty of that child labor. And it's actually still in the court system right now. And they're actually in contempt of court because they haven't been paying for it. So Lyle gets arrested. One of the crazy things, he's arrested for this and the food stamp thing. He is put under, the judge actually allows him to be put under house arrest. Right. And when this happens, everybody yeah. loses their mind. Why? And and we are. We, you know, when we heard that they were going to put him on our house, everybody called in to the judge and says, he will run. You know, people out here did it. The people, uh, the, the county, there were so many people that says he is going to run. Do not let him out. And we all knew he was going to run. And the reason why is because they have such a big support system that they can literally be gone in 24 hours. And we knew that was going to happen. But you were all wrong because God translated him to heaven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just say this. Lyle does, of course, run. He escapes. And his lawyers actually argue in court that he is raptured. And the Mormon term for raptured is translated. So they, they're, they're like, we don't know. Maybe God raptured him up to heaven. We, we don't know where he went. Like, it's possible he's in heaven now. <laughs> yeah, it was... You know, but he, when he ran, I was actually, I was like, yes, thank goodness he ran. Because, you know, they just had him for the food stamp fraud thing. You know, I'm like, well, if he runs, you know, maybe they build a stronger case and they gather more evidence. They will catch him. He'll screw up. You know, the Jeffs aren't going to leave their people. They're too, they're too controlling. They don't want to lose sight of that. And, and so I was, me personally, I was like, that's a good thing he ran. But at the same time, I'm like, we all told you so. But I almost wonder if they wanted him to run, to be honest with you. Interesting. I never thought about that. But yeah, that makes sense. And so that was like a year ago. He was on the run on the lamb. Um, I know that Sam Brower and a few other people have been looking for him for a year. And they just caught him. So talk to us about that. Yeah. So they caught him up in South Dakota. But he wasn't up by the Pringles, up by the comp, up by the FLDS compound there, he was several hundred miles away. You know, um, it's, you know, I think his son said it the best. I think that he got cut off somewhere along the way. Him and Warren had a fallen out and he got cut off from all support and living out of his truck. And he goes into a pawn shop and, and he's trying to pawn off the last two pairs of pliers, you know, for $37, I think it was, or what. And the the clerk happens to be like, I've 
heard that name and he looked it up and and called the cops and the cops got involved and it was just crazy but i almost wondered if that happened a while ago because i heard that he had got cut cut off he got disemboweled or whatever so being cut off this is the irony in how he was found because Lyle has been responsible for sending people away. Now, sending people away, as for podcast listeners will know, this is the FLDS term for like excommunication, um, with the intent of repenting to come back to the church. Usually, so you would you lose your family, you lose your status, you lose all your property, and you have to go make it in the lone and dreary world. Well, it seems Lyle was doing that all alone down on money, down on his luck. He had a car, which is more than a lot of people have when they're sent away, but um, it's kind of ironic that he gets caught that way. Oh, I just think it's karma. You know, he is... He's hurt a lot of people, and he's he's done some things that he's got to answer for. But, you know, find him in that way. You know, I, I hope he's in a position to where he will turn around and face the music and, and maybe see if we can get Warren to get as loose of his control over the people, you know, maybe flip or do something to where, you know, he can do a little bit of good for all the harm he has done. So that's what I want to talk about now. So Lyle's back in custody and it remains to be seen at this time in history on June 22nd, 2017, what is going to happen. But uh, we will be following that. So I want to talk about what this means for the FLDS, what this means for Short Creek, what this means for people in Pringle, who's in charge now. And I've done a podcast here where we interviewed a woman from the FLDS, and that was quite upsetting and even hurtful to a lot of people who had left the FLDS. They felt like I was giving a platform to propaganda or to Warren Jeffs's, you know, lie machine. And so I want to talk about that because, you know, I stand by the interview. To me, I think one of the most harmful things that we can do as human beings is to have very black and white thinking. And so I like that our, that we're challenging our thinking. And this is why I like Terrell, because Terrell is one of the unique people that I know that can have compassion for the FLDS and still hold them accountable. So it's it's a yes and for Terrell. It's never a yes but it's like, yes, we love them and they still need to be held accountable. And that's why I trust you, Terrell. That's why I respect you so much. And that's why I wanted to talk to you about this because I could bring on other people on the podcast who could tell me how indoctrinated and brainwashed the FLDS are. But that's not really the conversation that I think is helpful. So talk to me about the FLDS and the situation that they're in. And if you want to even comment on the interview that I did with Mother Irene in the podcast, I'd be happy to hear your thoughts on it too. No, I I love the the podcast you did with her because I think that there both sides of the story. There's two sides to every story, but then you got to realize there's two perspective to every story. And I love that she came and and she was actually brave enough to do that and actually talk to you. I think that was great, and I absolutely loved what she talked about because it it really shows the people around here that are working and the, the people out there, you know, kind of a, I think it shed a lot better light on what's going on in their world. Because like I say, it's not the same as when we grew up here. 
you know, when people say, man, can you believe they're doing that? And I'm like, well, not really, because we never did that growing up. And so I just had to start understanding that it, it's a whole different living situation that we grew up in and what they are now dealing with. But is there damage, Terrell, in giving them a platform or... Because the damage, and I had to weigh this in doing this interview, um, she said things that I think a lot of people would disagree with who have left the faith. They would, She represented uh, her church and her experience in a way that I think is foreign to a lot of people who have left. And yet, I don't think anyone went away saying, oh yeah, that's a really great thing. I want to join the FLDS or I want to have compassion for them. Rather, they thought, oh, this is what the mind of a believer thinks like. But is there danger? Why would why would it be hurtful to people who have left? Why would um, Mother Irene's story be so painful to them? Well, for one, we know the real truth out here, and that's why it's really so painful. Is she tells a story, but then we know the truth because we were there, and so a lot of it's not true. But I still honor her where she's at because at one time I was there. And I can love her through it. And a lot of that kind of stuff brings up a lot of emotions for people out here because we lived it. We were there. And then people come out and misrepresent it and tied up in a pretty little bow when it wasn't. Let's talk about that, too, because I'm an outsider that's coming to the town. And there's so many different groups down there with a lot of people with different agendas. I would say almost always good intentions. But... Um, talk to me about, about what that feels like. Cause there, there's a certain pride in the town that I've noticed to where people there don't want to be seen as victims. You're absolutely right. In fact, it's one of the biggest things people always say out here is we don't need to be saved. The people out here are very resilient and we feel like we don't need to be saved, but we feel like we need the support that we have pushed away from our our the people from the outside world we need we need diversity and we need assistance but we don't need to be saved if that makes sense yeah no it makes perfect sense and here's here's the thing that's really interesting to me so i always say like if a faith crisis is a town it's short creek going there is like experiencing a faith crisis because in the town you have there's a there's so many misconceptions about the town but uh the town now is way different than it was five years ago. And as you mentioned, it's way different than it was 20 years ago. But right now, it's a lot of um, people who have been sent away or left the church who are coming back to reclaim their city, who remember what the town was like 20 years ago and are trying to make it better. But the town is, I mean, it's like a developing country down there. Um, it's very dilapidated. Things are falling apart. Um, businesses have been shut down. And so people are trying to revive that. They're opening up businesses. Terrell's helped start a chamber of commerce and a, and a city council and, and all of this stuff. But it still has a long way to go. So you have a lot of people who have left who are really, really angry. And some of them, if we're being honest, just want to see the FLDS burn and hurt, just like any other ex-Mormons I work with that are really angry at the LDS church. That's something that happens. And then you have people whose families are still in the FLDS and they miss them and have compassion. And then you have faithful believers. Did I represent that correctly? Yeah, you're completely right. It is. There is so much 
you know, the best way I explain it to people, I'm like, you hear, hear the third world, you hear about the religious wars. It's a lot like that down here. You have all these different groups arguing about who has the right of the priesthood or the keys. And then you also have everybody arguing who has the right to the land. And then you have people trying to um, fix the cities. And there's so much going on. And there's so much uh, diversity. So you got this group over here that thinks this way. And you got the depressed group that are just trying to survive every day. And you got the the moms that are experienced freedom and the kids. And so you, you get everything out here from people that have just left to people that have been out to a year to people that have been out for 20 years and have been moving back. And so they, it just comes everywhere right now. It's just, it is absolutely amazing to even witness what's going on. And it's hard too. I, you know, we can't paint a rosy picture because there are, you know, drugs are in the town. And, you know, I've been doing this faith crisis work for a long time now for almost a decade with people in the LDS church. And I have noticed when there, there are phases that people go through. And one of those is the anger phase. And it's really important that they go through that and they have that. But if, in my experience, if they are not met with support and compassion, it kind of crystallizes and they can stay there. So you have you have people that are going to be experiencing those wounds forever. And then you have those who never knew what to do with alcohol and drugs and sex and all of those things. And so they just kind of go off the deep end, if you will, go hog wild and overindulge because they think that, you know, too many boundaries that the next way of thinking is no boundaries at all. And so you're definitely seeing that in the town as well. Yeah. And, and you, you said it just right. You know, these, the kids out here, um, there's nothing for them to do. You know, there's not a city center. There's not a skate park. There's, there's not a lot that they can go do. And the town has changed so much. It's not like it was when I grew up to where you could just go hiking and camping and play football. There's a lot of infrastructure that has been missing now, but, these kids, you know, when they're told that they're bad and they're wicked and bad and wicked people do drugs and they drink and so they just think that that's what they're supposed to be doing now because they're bad and wicked now and they're lost and they've been told that, you know, all their lives, if you do this, you're bad and you're wicked and it's just, and so that's what they do. And all of a sudden they're like experience this new stuff and it's, they're awesome, but it's like a kid in a candy store. They just go crazy. You know, they never got to experience that ever. Yeah. And they were and they were never educated on the danger or, or the risks on anything out here. There was no sex education. There was no drug education. There was no alcohol education. It was we don't do that and we don't talk about it. So don't talk about it. And that is a terrible way to approach that in today's world is we need to talk about that and we need to get that in the open and, and everybody needs to be talking about that. Well, and that's what you are doing. And and I want to talk about some, let's talk about some of the ways that you personally, I, I know that you are a humble man. And this is going to be hard for you. <laughs> but uh, I want you to talk about some of the ways that you've made changes or you've seen other people made changes. And I'm going to say this because he won't say this for him. I think everybody down there um, will say this about Terrell. Everybody knows who he is. Everybody knows he has a heart of gold. Everyone knows he's trustworthy and honest. And he is 
Terrell, you've just made such a difference in the town in the short time that you've been back. You know, that was when I was thinking about moving home is, you know, I was really sick. I've been going through my treatments and I was living in a garage at the time. And uh, I said, if I, if I end up moving home and we get this house, we're not going to go out there and just exist. It is t- it's time we be a part of something. Life is too short to just go and exist in, in towns and city without making friends in the neighborhoods or cities, you know. And so we committed to ourselves, me and my wife, that if we were going to come out here, we were going to get involved and be a force for good and be a Switzerland where everybody could be welcomed. And it didn't matter who you were or what you believed in. That was my motto when I first moved out here. And the first time I really got involved in the town was in the flood when, you know, all those, those dear children and those moms died in that flood. Um, I was really sick at the time and I was bedridden, but I wanted to help because they were all my cousins. All those, those family that died were all my cousins. And I wanted to help because it was my town and I was back home and in, in my town, everybody jumped in and started helping. And so I got on Facebook and I started a, a page and just started reaching out. And I, I would call Costco and I would call Walmart and I would call Subway and I would call these businesses. And we started bringing on all this food for, for, uh, for this flood effort. And so that's really where my work started was um, coordinating the flood events and, and bringing in the volunteers. And I got to meet s- such an amazing amount of people through that experience. And it, in my mind, um, when people ask, you know, when did things really start changing and people really started getting along again, I believe that was the flood. You know, uh, working down the creek, you had FLDS, apostates, Gentiles, bikers, all working hand in hand. And that hadn't happened in so many years. And there was so much healing done that we got out of that, this town. Well, not only that, that was the first time I think that the government, um, the Utah government actually started actively getting involved. The governor shows up for the first time ever there. We had the governor come into town and, and that's when change really started happening with people like me, you know, uh, reaching out to the government's office, the lieutenant governor's office saying, we need some help out here. We need to do something different. We feel like we don't, we're not represented as a people. We feel like Hildale, the Hildale city does not represent the people. They represent the church. It's for the church by the church. It was never for the people by the people. And that that flood event, you know, opened up doors to where we were able to start ta- uh, talking to them and getting help. And at that time, there was a lawsuit going around for discrimination that was happening in Arizona. What was and the so lawsuit? The lawsuit was that um, there was a couple of people out here that the city refused to do water hookups on. And the court found them guilty of discrimination. And so now the city right right now is in a process of a big overhaul because they've been found. So it says that the, the United States District's Court for the District of Arizona has held that the cities of Hildale and the, the 
and the town of Colorado City engaged in illegal discrimination on the basis of religion and have violated the Federal Fair Act, the First, Fourth, and Fourteenth Amendment. So they were found guilty of all this. And so they absolutely wouldn't hook this water up because these people were apostates. And this man was in a wheelchair and they were hauling water from the canyon for years while this lawsuit drug out. And so during that time, um, me just coming back and then uh, a friend of mine, George Jessup's like, hey, if if we do a pancake breakfast or a Dutch oven breakfast for the 4th of July, you think people will show up? And I think a lot of people are like, yeah, George, do it. We'll support you. And, and so for years and years and years, the, all the celebrations out here stopped. And the 4th of July started, started back up again. And it was amazing to see that come together and, and the town spring into action and, and folks coming together. Yeah, that was one of my most memorable experiences ever. You know, I got to bring my kids there. And the the sad thing about that, I want to talk about, I think that this really illustrates the town. So that was the same time um, the church chapel, the FLDS chapel was there and the FLDS were scrambling to build a wall, a big cement nine foot uh, cinder block wall around the chapel and we didn't know why we suspected it had to do with the 4th of July but the chapel is right by the park where this where this celebration was and so you have this town that's going into the park and there's balloons and there's music and noise and the smell of grilled food coming through and then you have all these FLDS boys some as young as 8 or 9 that we saw building this wall and they're working from sunup to sundown they built this wall around this chapel in three days. It's it's crazy how fast they did that. And I remember just walking around taking pictures of this wall to make, you know, documenting, we're documenting children working on this wall. Just seeing these kids and their faces were red and hot in the July sun and they could hear the music and smell the smells. And I just remember thinking how sad that was to see they were right there while the rest of the town was celebrating. It's just a really poignant moment for me. Yeah, you are. I remember as a kid going to town and being thinking, why, why don't we celebrate Christmas? And just always remember that feeling of exactly what you're talking about. But it was the weirdest thing to see that wall go up as fast as it did. It was just like they worked day 24 hours around the clock to build that wall. They just worked and worked and worked. Well, and, and you mentioned this and we kind of skipped over it, but so you helped with this, the 4th of July, then you helped, um, well, talk about what you're helping do now, but I want to point this out. Terrell mentioned that he was sick. Do you want to talk about what that means? Cause I don't think people listening will know what this means when you say sick. I mean, Terrell's not, he doesn't just have a cold or a flu. So, so I have what they call a disease called Milroy's and Milroy's is your lymph system and your body don't work correct. doesn't work correctly that your lymph system, your, your toxins don't leave your body. And throughout the years of my life of work and it created bone cancer and other stuff in my legs to where they were just turning black and they were um, basically rotting from the inside out. And at that time, my spine had been damaged by it. And 
my whole body was just failing basically i and i kind of given up on life to be honest with you i just i was pretty tired I've, i'd had this disease most of my life and i've worked hard most of my life just trying to provide for a family and 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 so i was going through all this uh you know i was on so much medications and just trying to survive when i first moved out here i i weighed 90 pounds i was skin and bones i couldn't walk i had been in bed for a long time and my wife had just um she basically kept me alive i mean i'm here today because of her and her courage and to keep me going. And, uh, today I weigh 140 pounds. Um, I can actually walk, you know, like they said, you know, I would had a very low chance of walking and it still hurts quite bad to walk. And, you know, they basically sent me home to die and they said I wouldn't make it past June a couple of years ago and pissed me off. They told me that I had to go home and I'm like, you are not the author of my story. I'm going to prove you're on it. And I went home and I completely changed my life and my lifestyles and my eating. And, and I would tell you, I was the kid that loved pizza. I was the guy that liked good pizza and corn dogs and anything greasy and oily and Doritos and cottage cheese. And, my wife took it all away and I was the worst withdrawals I've ever felt in my life. It was, it was terrible, but it, I think it, I know it saved me and, and I love it, but. Well, you, um, let's give a shout out to Heather. Heather's your wife and she's great. And as a fun side note, um, Heather runs a daycare and she is the contractor that comes and does the childcare for Sunstone. And so if you want to support Heather, you can donate to the Fern Foundation um, that's going to be paying the fee for the childcare. And that's Heather and Terrell. You'll be there, right? So people can come yep. say hello. Yeah. Anybody that wants to, I, I love going to those events and meeting people because they're just incredible to see people um, engage it in a positive way that I, and that's what I loved when I first went to Sunstone last year. I was, I was really, really nervous. I was like, Oh, what did I get myself into? <laughs> <laughs> One of but Lindsay's I, weird I, things again. But I, I came away with such a positive experience because I feel like we need more platforms like these where people can come and talk about what's going on so we don't end up with another town like we have. Let's just be honest and open and 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 quit doing stuff in the dark and and that kind of stuff. Because I think that the platform that you built for Sunstone there is just amazing where the different groups can come together and talk about what they do and their beliefs in a positive way. Yeah. Well, thank you. And thanks for being part of it. Terrell also helped with our Short Creek uh, conference that we did. We did a historical conference where we had nine different groups, nine different Mormon groups come together and talk about history and talk about their groups. And it was in Warren Jeff's home and it was really unique, but really great. It went a lot better than I thought it might. <laughs> I think it went really well, but I'll tell you what, it was, it was a unique experience for me because I remember building that house and just thinking, I'm just like, who is this Warren Jeff's guy? <laughs> uh one day, I think we should have you on and just talk about your whole story. Maybe we should have you and Heather come on too, because that would be that would be really great. Because I think you have a lot to tell, and 
this is not an exaggeration, but in the history of Short Creek, when it's written, your name will be there because you have made such an impact. And you're so well-respected on all sides, and you do have love and compassion for the FLDS. And like I mentioned before, I really think that the only way to combat this sort of thinking is to not engage in it ourselves because... In, in my community, we do have a lot of black and white thinking and some people that are as self-righteous as faithful believers when they leave the church become as self-righteous out. And I've seen it do a lot of damage on both sides. So, um, yeah, I just I appreciate that about you. So, well, you see the pendulum swing too far because of people taking stuff too far where, you know, you say, hey. I don't like the way you dress. Well, guess what? Tomorrow is going to dress completely different just because of that remark. Yeah. And it's so true out here is you have to, I tell people the hardest thing about living out here is you have to learn true patience and unconditional love, even for the people up on city council that are doing that, you know, that they were appointed, but you just have to honor them, but you still have to, at the end of the day, say, Hey, you get to be accountable for the actions that you've done. I do love you, but guess what? You get to be accountable. And I think that's the only way real change is going to happen is if people get start being held accountable for what they're doing out here. It's just, it's been a cycle that's never been done out here. You know, the city councils and all this stuff out here, what they do is it's just, there's no accountability. And and that's that's the thing that I think we're dealing with in all the Mormon communities. If you've experienced unhealthy authority, you don't know what healthy authority looks like, right? So, and we've experienced this, you and I, in, in your town, which is some people don't want, you know, they've left the church now, they've experienced unhealthy authority. So any authority to them looks like unhealthy authority, right? So they're yeah. like, I don't want to follow any rules. I don't want to follow any leader. And it's like, no, guys, there has to be boundaries still. Just Yeah, and that's that's another thing is they just take it way too far, you know, to where you do. You have these parents that are leaving with their whole families, and these parents are finding this freedom. I mean, they're just finally found this freedom, and they start finding their friends, and they start hanging out. And, you know, a lot of the kids are getting left behind, and there's just so much going on with the parents that the Children are trying to figure out their way in the world too, and it's just it's a <laughs> it's a beautiful mess. I guess is the best way to put it. It is a beautiful <laughs> mess. Well, and it's true though. I mean, something about the way you guys were raised, for better or for worse, makes you you guys some of the most kind-hearted people I've ever met. Even the little kids flipping off people. If you talk to them, I mean, I was down there and there were these kids like uh, that looked really ominous on their bikes late at night. They came up to the house we were staying at and I was like, "Uh oh, we're in for trouble. And then I went out and talked to them and we ended up talking like for half an hour and they were great. And, yeah. Yeah. Just just well, the best people. I tell people, I says, you'll never find more talented people in the world and genuine. But we've built these walls We've built these these big old walls to not let anybody in. But once we let people in, we're just the greatest people. I mean, people start coming out here and I'm just like, you're hooked. You, you'll you never stop coming. And they're still coming today. They're just like, what'd you do to me? I, I just can't get enough of this place. These I know, mountains, it's like the magic. people, the, 
you guys don't know what you have out here. And I'm just like, I do. I realize that that's why I fight so hard every day is because I want this cycle to be broken. I don't want to have my kids have to be dealing with what I'm dealing. The cycle needs to be broken. And the cities and the people need to realize is that we're all in this together and nobody gets out alive and we better start acting like it. Yeah. And you're someone who actually walks the walk of that. And, and you know what, there's so there's uh, my love for you and for your family and for your town is so strong because it's just, it has actually, I've seen it reverberate into my community and it's brought healing to the LDS community and to the ex Mormon community and to the work that I do as well. It's just the, the, vibrations of your struggle have really affected all of us. And so when you have someone who like you is working so hard to strive towards the light and community health, it it pays off. Let's talk about the FLDS really quick. Um, what, what's happening to them now then, um, what's going on and how can people help? How should, how should outsiders approach this situation when, when there is propaganda or when there is anger from both sides, I mean, who do, do we trust the, the people who have left or do we trust the people that are in? How do we make sense of it? That's a really good question because, you know, I believe good is good. You know, I might not agree with the way people do it, but I see good. And what's going on with the FLDS is, you know, I was told there was a new bishop now, and there's been a few people that have been called back in. But for the most part, and is when what you I'm say that it, called back is, in means what? What does that mean to people? So, so when you get called back in, they say, "Hey, you know, we want to come in and do an interview, and we'll see if you can actually be back into the church." And that means that they can go through and do an interview and get baptized and be reinstated. Well, they do this to the people that they need when they realize that, hey, we're going to need something from this person. They'll go ahead and call them back. And it's it's really just plays with their lives because here they are, you know, finally getting adjusted to the world and all of a sudden their hopes and dreams that they called and, and they just completely restored their faith and everything. And then they'll get thrown aside and it's going to be terrible the second time around. But for the most part, from what I hear, and it's so hard to find truth. And that's people need to understand that out here. It's it's not like we can go and ask what's going on. It's a lot of it is through back channels and and so a lot of it I just have to take with a grain of salt and if I hear enough people say it, you know, but I don't know how much is truth. But from what I've heard, they were moving out. All the faithful people that were still part of the church were to were to move out. And anybody that just got left got left. And there has been a lot of families that just been left. And so out here, when you're in the church, the bishop's storehouse completely takes care of you. And so there are these mothers that were, you know, have all these kids and they go up to the storehouse and get food but all of a sudden they were cut off and nobody told them why nobody told them what happened they just they were cut off and their kids were starving and they were starving and so a lot of people are being left behind and a lot of people are hurting and suffering 
right now. And a lot of them, um, after talking to Mother Irene and some of the other faithful FLDS, they don't even realize they've been cut off or they think maybe God is just testing them to, you know, because they know that they're not getting revelations anymore. They're not getting fed and they are being evicted. So they see this as God's giving them a test. Yeah. And basically the reason why they're saying, hey, everybody's to move out is basically saying, you guys were not good enough. You guys' faith was not good enough and we lost our town. Imagine having that on your your plate being, oh my gosh, we failed. It's because of us. We're all getting evicted and they have just been shattered and broken. But at the same time, you have to hold them accountable for what they've done to the children, to the to the families. And I have extreme compassion for them. And I absolutely honor them for where they are. And, and I support them through means and other ways. But some of those people will have to be accountable. And mostly it's with their own families. You know, it's just not going to be an easy road. Yeah, there's a lot of damage being done even still. And and the sad thing is, as I've seen these families become more and more desperate as they've become out of favor with their church, you do have people, courageous people, who are walking away. But there are people that try to uphold the system, that try to keep other people down, sort of like crabs in a bucket, right? To pull yeah. the, the other people down to survive. And it's it is a really hard situation. It's a really complicated situation. It, it really is because there are families. They're, they're my brothers and sisters and they're my neighbor's brothers and sisters. And, and it's hard because here we are able to do something to help, but there's literally nothing you can do. And it is the most helpless feeling in the world to watch this happen to your family and your community. And because of their beliefs and where their thinking is, you can't step in and say, there's a better way over here. or There's something better. You absolutely just have to be, I'm here for you. I love you. If you need something, call me. That's it. Well, and there's this strange irony that if you juxtapose your experience with my experience at LDS. So in my community in the LDS, since the LDS is big and there's a lot of members, um, if you have left the church or have lost your faith, you lose credibility. You become someone we don't pay attention to. You can't talk about. Um, even me, I, you know, I'm still a part of the LDS church. I am still engaged in my community. I get accused of being anti-Mormon all the time because I'm talking about stuff a lot of the LDS people won't talk about, like, like polygamy. And so um, I know what it's like to have people say, well, if you don't believe a certain thing, you don't get a voice. And even like newspapers here, they won't quote people who aren't active if they're talking about Mormonism sometimes because they want the credibility. But with the FLDS, it's different. Uh, nobody really trusts the faithful. <laughs> they don't trust and give credibility to the faithful. It's the people that have left. And yet there's the same struggle. And I can see why people were upset with the Mother Irene interview, because when you're in the church and you hear the excuses over and over and you know that they aren't true, you want to be a valid voice for that when you've left. So most people do trust people who have left the church, right? And the, you guys don't get accused of being anti-Mormon when you leave the church like um, a lot of the LDS people do. 
No. The the most people that I know that leave this religion have nothing to ever do with religion again. I mean, they have been so hurt and burned that it literally it it causes anxiety to even talk to someone about it. You know, it really does. It's it's almost like a uh, they start reliving that, and it's just you have to be really careful out here how who you talk to, but. For most people out here, they think the LDS is are good people, you know, at least from my perspective and how I was raised. I was never taught that it was bad. I just, you know, it was the apostate church and, you know, they didn't know any better by this minute generation. So love well, them for what think, they are. <laughs> I think that's why people like me as much because when I tell them down there that I'm LDS, they get a little nervous and then I'm like, oh, but I know the history of, of the Council of Friends and John Willie and they're like, oh, yeah, you're one of those. But so very few people know that story. So, um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, it's the struggle of our faith. We have this shared heritage, you and I, like we have the same, you know, pioneer ancestors and things like that. And yet it's sort of these the way it's branched out into these struggles, they mirror each other just in really like sort of distorted ways. And it's been really healing for me to come down to Short Creek because I get to see my faith and my religion as an outsider or through someone else's eyes. And it's been really, really helpful for me. Um, What would you tell what would you tell people like me? What would you tell outsiders, people that, that want to help? Because I think a lot of people hear the horror stories and their intentions are good. Just like, you know, my intentions are good. But what is the danger of an outsider helping first? And then talk about what an outsider can do to help. You know, the real danger is we don't want just help. We want... um we want to teach people how to fish, not just give them fish. So too much help is bad because people are just waiting for the next people to come along and help them. And, and we see it in this community where the last few years we've had groups come through and we've seen these, these people just literally sit and wait for the next group of people to come in and save them or give them stuff or help them throughout this. Um, the real help is like education and stuff like that. But there is a lot of things that people can do to if they want to help. Like the great things like the Fern Foundation, what they do when they come down here, they come down and they uh, fix on people's houses. They help with people with bills. They help um, do nature centers. And to me, stuff like that is amazing because that's what the community community needs we need stuff community wise like that nature center that Lindsay started down there just to get that completed and get things going for kids to do um that's a great way to give back um to help this town and then there's a couple organizations around town and if you get with Lindsay, if you guys really want them then i can maybe do an email or something because I don't know what, what everybody's looking for. Well, we can link some things on the podcast too if you want to send me links. Yeah, maybe do some links. What but, about coming into the town? Um, so a lot of people still think of the town as creepy or they don't want to stop in. What would you tell the people driving through? Don't be worried. Come on in. and uh, You don't see a lot from the, the highway. A lot of people... 
have drove past this town for years and years. And then they come back into the Canyon where I live and they're just like, we live on the backside of Zion's and it is amazing back there. The views and the people you go over to the local stores and the bakeries, you see the town coming back to life. You have a bakery in town and you have a pizza place and you have a hardware store and you have a gas station that's opening up and you see this and go visit those places and meet the people because it is an amazing an experience. I mean, and I'll say I, this, I grew up here, so it's hard for me, but from what all of all the people that I've ever talked to, they're just like, that was the most amazing experience I've had in a lot of years. When can we come back? Well, the town is magic. There's a magic about it. And it, it's like how I feel about Hawaii, right? Like you go and there's yeah. just sort of this magic and it's, it's like that. It's so beautiful. And I will say this, when you have a community who have been self-sustaining and doing their own gardening and their own food for like a century, those people can cook. You've got to go eat at the restaurants, go put money into the town, go stop at all the, you know, shop at the hardware store on your way there, buy your kids something at the, at the family general store, eat at the restaurants. That is the integration. Let's talk about that for a second and then I'll let you go, Terrell. But why is integrating with other communities so important? Well, the biggest things that we did out here is we completely isolated ourselves from the outside world. We had one person that talked to our local and state government from each side. And so you literally start having no diversity start showing up in a town when you don't allow other people and other ideas and it's church ran. But now the, the, I call them the borders, the walls, whatever people call them, where we have all like, yes, please, everybody, please come out here, come and see what this, this is all about. We are sick of hearing how terrible it is out here. And this is not our legacy for a man to come in and ruin our legacy of our grandparents because this was a great town and this was a great people and a great talent and we had great ideas and opportunities and we had some of the smartest people in the world come from this town and that's what we want to do we want people to understand that it's not what everybody read about because you couldn't pick up a newspaper and hear about, read something about war and just without someone going in the history of, well, Hilldale is notorious for this and that and this. Well, it's not that way anymore. And we want to be done with that and rebrand it and say, we are a town and, it, and it's up to us as the citizens to take accountability for what happened, fix it, open our borders up, welcome everybody because it is beautiful. We're two hours from Lake Powell. You're two hours from snowboarding. You're two hours from Vegas. You want to go to Lake Powell, you're two hours. You want to go to Grand Canyon, two hours. And it's just, it's uniquely centered, right? In just the beautiful Arizona and Utah and the sunsets and the sunrises. It's just a unique experience every day. We get my blazer, load up my kids, and in literally one minute, I'm down in a creek and we're down there roasting hot dogs and take guests and we can go show them Indian writings and tell them about the Indian history and tell them about the Larts and history. And there's so much history out here. Not just even before we got here, there was a lot of history. It's, it's such an incredible place and you can drive up. Uh, is that Maxwell Canyon? 
Yeah, Maxwell. And, and there's a park up there, too. So if, if you're an outsider and you want a good vacation, this is what I say. Call Brielle Decker, rent the Warren Jeffs house for her for a weekend, pay her a few hundred dollars, you'll get the house, you're helping Brielle Decker. Yeah. Then you can camp out with your family or camp in the town and then drive up this canyon. They have spring water that comes from like this ancient hot springs where everyone fills up their water. And the hiking there is unbelievable. Yeah, it is just like I say, it is if, if anybody's been to Zion's and wants to see it, a whole new side of Zion's, the, the canyons, the the trails and the natural springs that come out and feed our canyons. It's very beautiful. And I tell people, you know, if, if people want to message me, I say, you know, I'll give you a tour. Or I'll show you around. I love, I love people to get informed. And that's the biggest thing that I've, I've tried to do is I just want people to be informed and know that the, there's more to the story than, than what's been out there in the newspapers. There's good people out here and there always has been good people out here. And we have a lot of stuff to still do, but we've created a lot of change already. And the people, the people are coming back around. And um, it's just, just amazing to see the kids riding their bikes around the uh, town again. And every evening up at the park, there's children out there playing. And when I moved out here, it was dead quiet. Nobody was moving. It was just like a ghost town. And, and it was just weird to see if somebody was even on a bike. <laughs> well, I can I can attest to this too because it feels like every time I go down, it's it's different. The town changes so quickly; things happen so quickly there. But I mean, Terrell Terrell would be a great person to contact, and so I can link to whatever information he wants me to to give, whether it's your email or Facebook. Terrell is great for that. And tell them, let's just, while we're at it, let's just invite everyone to the the 4th of July thing. Do you want to do that? Yeah. And so this year, our 4th of July is, is actually going to be on the 4th of July. Last year, we did it on the 2nd of July, but this year it's actually going to be on the 4th. It'll be on a Tuesday. It takes place at Cottonwood Park and we do a free pancake breakfast and we do like the old school parades. It is amazing to just that old school parade feeling is it's all the, all the locals, they build floats and there's going to be a really fun parade. There's going to be activities for kids all day long, train rides, I believe, uh, for their train rides, water activities. And it is amazing. If you, if you really want to know what the people are about, if you really want to experience our culture and our heritage, come to this, this would be a great way for you to come and experience it because this year we're we're going on um our heritage and our founding fathers and, and stuff like that to where it's going to be a lot of talk of the old and and where we came from and so if you're all if you've been interested if you've been wondering if you're looking for something to do i'll tell you it's a once in a lifetime experience and they're not always going to be like these. They're eventually going to change into a city. We're actually going to start changing it more and more into a city and they're going to change. So it's a unique opportunity for sure. And so that just takes place. It starts at 6 a.m. And it's just at Cottonwood Park in Colorado City, Arizona. And if you Google it, it will lead you right to Cottonwood Park. Yep. And just go park your car alongside. Uh, your car's safe. People ask me that all the time. Yes, your car yep. is safe. And uh, just walk up to the park and start talking to people. 
Yeah. The biggest thing is, is just start talking. Don't be shy because people won't talk to you unless you talk to them first. That's one of the biggest things out here is, <laughs> you know, you'll see people talking to each other, but unless they know you, they won't come and talk to you. So just um, walk up to people like George Jessup. He's been amazing organizer and he's the one that runs the sc festivities and his wife Miriam and, and harvey dockstader he's a pillar there's all these pillars out here that are springing up and all these these people taking a stand and more and more people are taking a stand and that's what's bringing the town lifting the veil over just taking it over the town and, and getting rid of it is there's these people that are taking a stand for the for good and not just their beliefs, but all good. That means respecting people for even what they believe, even if you don't agree with them. Well, again, I know I've sang your praises, but you're one that leads by example with that. So I really appreciate you coming on. And if you guys want to support the town, go and put money into the town. You can donate to Terrell's family at thefernfoundation.org. Uh, that will go to the to their child care fees that we're going to do at Sunstone this year. Come meet Terrell at Sunstone. Um, support this podcast. Terrell, is there anything else you want people to know? Uh, we just want to thank everybody out there like Lindsay and that there's so many people out there that are really making a difference, helping us feed these families that we're taking care of. And we just want to tell people how grateful we are. And we really are thankful for, for everything that we get and even having an opportunity chance to fix this and make it better. But I just want the people here in my town to know that it really takes all of us and we're all in this together and we all want to fix this and and do right and the people on the outside is i've always i've always said it to Lindsay. i'm like if the people out here take a stand and make the push the people on the outside will get right behind for support and that's exactly what's been happening and we just can't thank everybody enough i mean there's just been miracle after miracle after miracle that has happened at the Christmas events, the 4th of July events, these, the kid events, just beautiful events that are just so healing, but it really takes all of us and we're all connected. Like Lindsay said, you know, what happens here in Hilldale really does affect the state of Utah. Imagine if we can get Hilldale working properly to where the state tax dollars wouldn't have to keep it going. Imagine if we came self-sufficient, how much more tax dollars could be saved. And, and so we need to be the change and lead by example down here in Hilldale and help the state change where they need to. Maybe we, maybe we can start a revolution. Maybe we can start some change everywhere by what we do here because Colorado city and Hilldale is a, a mirror of what America's kind of going through in my mind. There is so much going on and the economy and just how everything was stripped. And it's just a lot of people refer to what happened out here, what's going on in America. And that's kind of how we're trying to fix it and bring it back to the people. We want the people. It's about the people. The people need to have control of it. Well, thank you, Terrell. I love you, brother. Thanks for coming on today. Hey, thanks for having me. And thanks so much for what you and your organization do for so many people.
sure to support Utah women making local music. If you like the music on this podcast, it comes from a band called Lady Murasaki. You can check them out at ladymurasaki.bandcamp.com.